Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Hey, if you brought a Bible, would you just wave it at me? Let's see some Bibles out there. Good. See some cell phones, iPads getting waved at me too. That's great because we're a church that loves to dig into God's Word. We want more of God, as the song just said. We want to give Him more of us. And so this is the book that tells us how to do it. On a beautiful summer morning like this, I'm glad that you've come to figure out how to get closer to God. So let's pray and ask him to help us do that, okay? God, as we look into your word and we're being joined by our other campuses, not only here in St. Charles, uh, but down in Blackberry Creek and out in DeKalb and up in Streamwood Bartlett, God, we're joined together as one church digging into your word. We pray that you would be our teacher. God, we know that there's a natural resistance in our lives to your authority. It's just our sinful bent to say, oh, we don't want to do what you tell us to do. So you're not only going to have to help us see truths in your word that are applicable to our lives, you're going to have to give us the willingness and the ability to put these things into practice. So we look to you to be our life coach today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are concluding a six-part series today called Worldview. Okay, a worldview is uh, how we see and evaluate everything around us. And during the course of this series, I've used the analogy of glasses. A worldview is like a set of glasses. If you wear glasses, uh, most often you're not aware of them. Okay, and yet you see everything in life through these glasses. Everything. And that's the way it is with a worldview. You see everything in life through your worldview. Okay, you see a people, you see decisions you have to make, you see your job, you see moral values, everything through the lenses of your worldview. Uh, after the first message in this series on worldview and the analogy of the glasses, I got an email from, from an optometrist in our congregation. And she said, I gotta tell you a story. Uh, she said, I had a patient come, come to see me, they had broken glasses. And so I said, well, if we're going to replace your glasses, let's give you a vision test. And I gave them a vision test, and I found that if I changed their prescription, I could help them see better by two lines on that vision chart. I mean, they needed some corrective uh, lenses. And so we ordered the, the new lenses, and they came, and I put them into some new frames, and we tried them on, and we gave this person, this patient, the vision test, 20-20 vision, perfect. So they go home, but two weeks later they show up and they say, I want my old glasses back. I saw better through my old lenses. And this optometrist was smart enough to realize this was a battle she was not going to win. So she just replaced the new 2020 lenses with some 2040 lenses, and the patient was happy. Now, the reason I tell you this story is that because when it comes to our worldview glasses, the glasses each of us through which we see the world, we can convince ourselves that our old lenses are better than new lenses. Now, where do we get our old lenses? Where do we get our original worldview glasses? 
I've told you over the past several weeks, well, we pick them up from our, our parents' values, from the news media, from the movies we watch and the books that we read, from advertising and marketing, from our friends' opinions and, and so on. We also pick up our worldview glasses from some mega worldviews out there in the culture at large, dominant popular themes in the culture. And so in this series, we have been considering half a dozen of those mega worldviews. We've covered five so far. Individualism, pluralism, secularism, naturalism, and moralism. The, these are the glasses that our culture is urging us to wear. But God wants to provide us with a new set of lenses. Where do we get those lenses? Well, we get those lenses from God's holy word. This is God's worldview. But now here's the problem with these new Bible-formed lenses. Even though they correct our distorted vision, the truth is we've become so accustomed to our distorted vision that sometimes we prefer to live with the distortion, just like the optometrist patient who wanted their old glasses back. So today we're considering a final worldview, mega worldview, that we have become so comfortable with we will be tempted to hold on to our old lenses instead of, instead of replacing them with the corrected lenses that we find in the Bible. So today's worldview, mega worldview, is consumerism. Say that with me. Consumerism. Good. Now let's turn in those Bibles you waved at me a few moments ago to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. While you're turning, uh, I want to tell you, I had lunch with a friend this past week who's got a high school son, and he was thanking me for the series. He said, you know, this has been so helpful because I've gone home with my son every week and we've talked about the topic because I know these are the worldviews that are shaping his life. And so it's given us something to talk about. And I thought, what a wise dad to debrief with his teenage son after these sermons. And let me say, Clayton and I, every week we put a lot of time into those questions that you'll see at the end of the outline, the sermon outline each week. Because we, we want you to go out of here and talk about things, whether it's with a friend or with uh, family members or your community group. And uh, so parents, way to go. This is an important series to talk about with your kids. If you missed any of the, uh, of the installments in the series, I'd encourage you to go online, watch it together as a family, and then talk about it. And speaking of good parenting, one other thing I need to mention. Uh, last weekend on Father's Day, uh, we did a baptism. And I have you know, been telling you for weeks, this is the best way that a da dad could set a spiritual tone for his family. Like if you've trusted Jesus, dads, then go public with it. Let your kids know that you're a follower of Christ. He's your savior, your king. And I just want to say, I don't know uh, how it played out at the other campuses, but here in St. Charles, we had a number of dads get baptized. And I want to say, way to go. Way to go, dads, for setting the tone. And parents, <laughs> parents, I'm not done with my soapbox yet. Parents, you are the prime spiritual mentors of your kids. You are. Not the kids' world teachers at Christ Community Church or our student ministry staff, though we want to come alongside, we want to help you, but you are the prime spiritual mentors. Not the teachers at the private Christian school you send your kids to. You are the prime spiritual mentors. So it's up to you, if you've got grade school kids, it's up to you to pick up an epic Bible study reading schedule and see to it that every day your family gathers around God's word and you read it and you talk about it. 
You know, it's up to you to make sure throughout the course of the summer your kids get to church because they don't drive the car, you drive the car, you get them here. Okay, it's up to you to see to it that they get signed up for the sorts of spiritual activities that are going to enhance their their walk with God. Things like camp commotion. You You sign your kids up for everything else under the sun. Sports stuff and entertainment and park district and whatever. Make sure they get what's going to transform their lives from the inside out, a relationship with Jesus. You're the mentors. You get it? Good, good. Now, today, the worldview of consumerism. Uh, We don't want our kids, we don't want ourselves to become consumerists. Now there's a difference between being a consumer and being a consumerist. Okay, the dictionary defines a consumer as one who utilizes economic goods. And and that's something we all do, okay? You, You can't live in the world without using your money to purchase important stuff, to, you know, to buy food and clothes and a, a laptop and a refrigerator and transportation and, and so on. We all utilize economic goods. We're consumers. But a consumerist is a consumer on steroids, all right? A consumerist is a person who puts a lot of time and energy into shopping and buying stuff. A consumerist is a person who thinks that their next purchase whether it's a, it's a latte or a gym membership or a sofa or a cruise or a video game or what, their next purchase is going to make them real happy. A consumerist is a person who thinks if they got enough money in the bank, they're going to be secure. Okay? And Jesus, Jesus has a word for consumerists. He calls them fools. He calls them fools. If your Bible is open to Luke chapter 12, we're going to begin Uh, reading today, our passage begins at verse 13, and I've taught you to look for the theme of a passage by noting the heading. So what's the heading over verse 13? It says in my Bible, the parable of the rich fool. The rich fool. So we're going to consider today six stupid mistakes that consumerists make. Okay, if you don't want to be a fool in this regard, Let's pay attention to what Jesus has to teach us. The the first mistake is this. Consumerists treat people poorly. If you, you haven't started taking notes yet, I encourage you to write down the outline because at the end of the sermon, I want to ask you, so which of the six stupid mistakes are you most prone to make? So God brings us here to change us by the teaching of his word. So pay close attention to these six mistakes. These are things to avoid. Uh, We begin at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, before Jesus tells this parable about foolish consumerists, Luke gives us some background, some context for the parable. A guy in the crowd is hogged off because his parents have passed away and his older brother hasn't split the inheritance with him. This guy wants Jesus to settle the family dispute. Well, Jesus wasn't about to get in the middle of a family squabble over financial matters. So he replies, verse 2, man, who appointed me to be a judge or arbiter between you? Bible scholars tell us that this expression, man, was, it was really a harsh word in the ancient Middle East. It, it, it was like saying, hey, pal, or listen up, knucklehead. 
Okay, and, and then Jesus tells everybody a story about the stupid mistakes that consumerists make. And here's the first one. It comes right out of this context. They treat people poorly. A focus on money, a focus on possessions causes conflict in relationships. How many examples of this do you want me to give you? Right? Like you live in a nice suburban community and the fence between your yard and your neighbor's yard gets dilapidated and it falls down and you're waiting for him to call the repair guy, a carpenter, to come and fix the fence and he's waiting for you to purchase some lumber and get out there and fix the fence. And it's a, it's a financial issue and it's causing tension in your relationship. Or your parents bought you a new laptop as a graduation gift and you're pumped about it. Well, well, you were pumped until your friend came over with their graduation gift, which is a new car. And now you look at your parents and say, what cheapos, right? Or how about this? Your, your elderly father recently passed away and you traveled to his funeral out of state. And your siblings all live locally there, so they, they've already been there and they've gone through the house and they've labeled everything they want from the estate and there's nothing left for you. And so you're not talking to your siblings these days. Or how about, how about this one from our current Bible-savvy reading schedule? By the way, if you're not on a daily Bible reading schedule, let me recommend again the journal. Pick up a journal, follow the reading schedule. We're currently, uh, we've been going through the Old Testament books of First and Second Kings. Now, First Kings is the story of King Solomon, who was reputed to be the wisest man of all time. But let me tell you about a stupid mistake that Solomon made. Okay, he, he built this gorgeous temple for God. He took twice as long to build his own palace. I mean, he you know, did all sorts of building projects, and the supplies and the skilled labor were provided by a friend of his, King Hiram of Tyre. Tyre had given him gold. Uh, Hiram had given him his best craftsmen and so on. And so when Solomon gets done with all the building, he gives Hiram a gift for you know, all the favors he's bestowed on him, 20 cities. And you read this in 1 Kings 9, and you say, well, that's a pretty good reimbursement, 20 cities. But if you read carefully in, in the story, it turns out that they were kind of decrepit little villages. In fact, Hiram went to look him over, and he said, these are Kabul, which in Hebrew means good for nothing. So Solomon had stiffed his buddies. You ever been in a business partnership where you gave 110% and the other person gave like 8%? So how's your relationship with that person today? See, consumerists treat people poorly. Yeah, it's a temptation we all face when money is involved, right? Not too long ago, I got a new used car. Low mileage, good condition. Uh, only problem was the car is just a little bit bigger than my last car. So my last car was a small SUV, and this is considered, my car is considered a midsize SUV. For, for the first several weeks, I had a hard time negotiating parking spaces because I didn't know quite where the corners of the car were. So I pulled into the gym one day, and I scraped the car next to me. And I get out, and I look, and there's this long scratch. And my first response is, this is going to cost me some money. And my second response was, I probably didn't put that scratch there. <laughs> and honest to goodness, I debated for 15 minutes what to do. 
I kept walking around the car and looking at it, and well, it could have been there already, that scratch, because I'm thinking to myself, if I leave my name and my phone number on a slip of paper, the dude's going to call me, and he's going to take me to the cleaners. He's going to get his car all fixed up, and it's going to cost me all sorts of money. And I finally came to my senses, and I had to apo- I apologize to God for taking so long to make what should have been an obvious decision. You know, forget the money. There was a guy who was going to come out of the gym that day, and his heart was going to sink when he saw this long scratch on his car. Did I care about him? So I wrote out my name on a slip of paper, and I left it, and I eventually ended up having his car fixed. Consumers treat people poorly. Okay, how many financial arguments have you had if you're married with your spouse over what to buy or not to buy or how to save, how to give, how to spend? It creates tensions and friendships with clients and so on. Consumers are more concerned about getting what they want than they are about building healthy relationships. That's the first stupid mistake consumerists make. Number two, Second stupid mistake, they turn a blind eye to personal greed. Turn a blind eye to personal greed. Look at verse 15. So Jesus said to them, to the crowd, he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Did you notice that this verse begins with a double warning? Watch out. That's number one. Be on your guard. It's number two. It's a pretty strong language here. It insinuates that there's something we're going to miss. There's a danger we won't see coming unless we're really, really vigilant. So what's the danger? Well, the danger is greed. It's incredibly sneaky. Greed eludes our detection. One, One Bible commentator says this about Jesus' warning here. He says, I've actually never met a greedy person. Never met a greedy person, and by that I mean I've never known a man or woman who would look me in the eye and admit, ah, and admit I struggle with greed. See, greed attacks by stealth, friends. Do you see traces of greed in your life? If you say, well, no, or, or my question even offends you, greed me? It could be that it's so sneaky you don't even see it. You don't see the potential danger it is to you. And I want to tell you, you're no exception. Jesus warns us all to be on the lookout for greed in our lives. He warns us twice. Watch out. Be on your guard. You know, the seriousness of this caution is underscored by Jesus' teaching that greed comes in a variety of forms. Look at the middle of verse 15. Jesus refers to all kinds of greed. See that? In other words, just when you think you've become an expert at detecting greed in your life, guess what? It morphs to a different species of greed and you miss it. You don't spot it. It goes undetected. And I decided to sit down and make a list of all kinds of greed I could think of. So if Jesus says it comes in a wide variety, what are some of the kinds of greed I can think of? So you might not agree with everything that I put on my list, but, but it could be that the reason you disagree is you just don't spot what I'm talking about in your life and it's getting you. Okay, so here's seven, seven kinds of greed I came up with and there are probably many, many more, but fearful greed, that's the first one. 
We're always pursuing more, 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 more because we're worried about having enough to meet our needs. We've got to put food on the table, you know, gas in the car, pay the electric bill, pay the doctor, have enough money for family vacation. And, and so we can't afford, this is what we say, we can't afford to be generous. We can't afford to give money away to the Lord's work. So that's fearful greed. I'm greedy because I'm, I'm worried I won't have enough for me. Second kind of greed that I thought of is covetous greed. You know, I didn't want a new iPhone until all my friends got new iPhones, and now I'm convinced I couldn't live without a new iPhone. That's how that works. Covetous greed. We, we want what others have. We're contented with our car till we see their car parked in the drive next to our home. Now we want their car. We want their jeans. We want their concert tickets. We want their sunroom. We want their weekend getaway. We want their nails and hair. I especially want their hair. You know. And, and in addition to coveting the stuff of people we know, we covet all that stuff we see in the bazillion catalogs that come to our mailbox uh, every week or the pop-up ads on our computer or the outlet malls that we frequent far too often. It's covetous greed. The third kind of greed I thought of was impulsive greed. You saw that illustrated in today's video. You know, we see it, we want it, so we get it. And we've got credit cards that make that possible. How many impulse spending decisions do we make every day? We didn't think about it before the day began, but on the spot we decide we're going to eat out, or we're going to book a cruise, or we're going to buy our 27th pair of shoes, or we're going to get a tattoo, or we're going to sign our kids up for yet another sports team. On the spot, impulsively. Here's a fourth kind of greed, family greed. Someone has said that we, we, we tend to deify family in our culture today. Family is our God. So if you want to justify any spending decision, just say it's for the sake of the family. And you're good to go. Right? TV in every room, private school, exotic vacations, catered birthday parties, an extra vehicle for the child that turns 16. Now, I'm not saying that any of these things is automatically bad. I'm just pointing out that they're not automatically good either just because they're for the family. Fifth kind of greed, business greed. You know, this is spending money to look and act successful. Okay, i got to have a certain look at the job that I do. So it covers everything from the car or the truck that you drive to the clothes that you wear to the entertainment you provide for customers to the places you go for conferences to the techie tools you purchase. I mean, some of this is legit, but some of it is over the top. It's business greed. Sixth, expensive taste greed. You, you just like the best of everything. You, you like the best stereo system, you like the best wine, the best seats of the stadium, the best sneakers, the best college for your kids, the best breed of dog, the best, you name it. And again, there's nothing wrong with an occasional best of, but you will never overcome greed, you'll never become a generous person unless you, you learn to forgo the best of every time for the sake of yourself. Seventh kind of greed, retirement greed. 
You know, the Bible says that saving up for the future is a wise thing to do, but at what, what point does saving up for retirement become excessive? At what point does your savings so that you could live comfortably in retirement keep you from becoming a generous giver? All sorts of greed, Jesus says. All kinds of greed. We, we, we turn an eye. Consumers turn a blind eye to personal greed. And Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard. By the way, it might, it might be helpful also to take a look at those seven kinds of greed sometime in the next 24 hours. And to ask yourself the question, to ask God to put his finger on what kind of greed upends you. What, what, what kind of sneaky greed has wormed its way into your life? If you're not sure and you're mar married, ask your spouse and they'll tell you, okay? Number three, consumerists take an owner's view of possessions. The third stupid mistake consumerists make, they take an owner's view of their possessions. Now, we finally arrived at the parable itself. So go back to the text, verse 16. So Jesus told them this parable. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. Stop there. The wealthy farmer obviously thought of himself as a self-made man, and we pick up on that from the first-person pronouns that are sprinkled throughout this story. If you, if, you, if you got your own Bible, just circle all, all the times this guy uses the pronoun I. What shall I do? Well, I'll do this. I'll do that. I mean, he clearly saw himself as being in charge of his own destiny. He also liked the first person uh, pronoun my. You could circle that. My crops, my barns, my surplus grain, and so on. Now, what's interesting is that this guy never mentions God in his plans. I mean, you would think that farming would be the one profession where God's contribution is eagerly sought because it's so desperately needed. I mean, if God doesn't show up, if God doesn't provide enough sunny days, if God doesn't provide just the right amount of moisture, not too much, not too little, if God doesn't provide protection from pests and natural disasters and so on, if God doesn't intervene in this whole deal, there ain't going to be no harvest. But this guy was a fool because he left God out of the picture. He failed to recognize that everything he had, everything he had belonged to God. Psalm 24, verse 1, puts it this way. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Consumerists don't get this, that God owns all their possessions, from their checking account to their financial investments, from their bicycle to their pickup truck, from their Cubs tickets to their Brookfield Zoo membership, from their frequent flyer miles to their Amazon Prime account, from their golf clubs to their video games. God owns everything we've got. And he entrusts it to us to manage it. We are managers, not owners. 
which means that we should be seeking God's priorities. We should be seeking God's direction with every expenditure. We should be asking the question, is this something God wants me to buy? I have a friend at Christ Community Church who lets me use his home on occasion down in Florida. So he now lives up here, but his mom lived in that that home until she passed away and he decided to keep the house. So he owns the house, but allows me to use it. Okay, so I want you to imagine this. Imagine if my next trip down, down to Florida, I decide to redecorate his house. So I hire a painter, you know, I go out and buy some furniture and I leave the, leave the bills for all this on his counter. Or how about this? I got some high school buddies, okay? And so I, I say to my high school friends, you guys need a place to go next spring break? Here are the keys to this house. Use it. Have a good time. Party hardy. Or how about this? Let's take it to an extreme. Next time I go down there, I decide to sell the sucker. I put a for sale sign. I get a realtor. I'm going to sell the house. Would I do this? Say, of course you wouldn't do this. That's ridiculous. Why not? Because I don't own the house. He owns the house. I just use it. Friends, this is the way it is with our possessions. God owns them. We use them. Consumers have this foolish notion that it's theirs to do with as they please. Don't factor God into decisions about expenditures and so on. And we're going to stand before Almighty God one day and we're, we're going to answer for the way we behaved sometimes as owners instead of managers of God's resources. You get it? Good. And I think that's part of the reason for the tithe in Scripture, you, you'll find, is that giving God the first 10% of every paycheck, of every source of income, first 10% off the top minimally goes to God. And the reason is that's a statement, it's a realization that God actually owns 100% of what I have. It's not like I give him 10% so I could keep the 90%. No, the 10% says 100% belongs to God. So if you're not given that tithe yet, you got ownership issues. (laughs) Consumerists foolishly think their possessions are their own. Number four, consumerists trust in money for security. Look at verse 19. We continue with the story. This guy's built bigger barns, and he's storing up his surplus grain. He's riding high on the hog, and he says, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you, and then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Now I want you to draw a circle around two phrases in this story. That's why you bring your own Bible. You can mark it up. Two phrases, and then we're going to draw a line between the two circles. The first circle goes around the phrase, many years, in verse 19. The wealthy farmer says to himself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Many years. The second circle in verse 20 goes around the phrase, this very night. So God said to the farmer, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Okay, now you connect the two circles. You draw a line between them, between many years and this very night, and you see the contrast. You see the contrast. 
This guy lived as, as, as if his earthly life would go on and on and on. He had stored up wealth that gave him a sense of security, but it was a false security. You know, money in the bank, a nice home, Blue Cross Blue Shield coverage, a well-funded retirement account. These things can't protect our lives from harm. You know, as, as, as I was banging out this portion of my sermon this week, I had to stop. It was Wednesday, and I had to run over to the hospital to check in on a friend. One of the guys in my men's community group was going through open-heart surgery. Okay, 42 years old, four young children. He's a healthy guy, worked out all the time. And no history of heart disease, heart problems in his family. And yet, last Saturday night, he felt a pain coming on, went into the emergency room on Monday, had an angiogram. You're blocked 100% in one artery, 99% in another, and 70% in a third. You're doing open-heart surgery on Wednesday of this week. See, there, there's no lead-up to this kind of stuff. There's no protection against it, friends. You know, my friend has a nice job, a nice home. In, in what ways have you assumed that you could buy security? Because you've got a good job. You've got insurance policies. You've got financial investments. You've got enough possessions to make your life comfortable. But none of that can protect you. Can't protect you from cancer. Can't protect you from chronic depression. Can't protect you from marital conflict. Can't protect you from loneliness. Can't protect you from a wayward child. Can't protect you from economic downturn in the country at large. We are all so, so, so vulnerable. And consumerists make the stupid mistake of not realizing that until it's too late. And so they don't invest time and effort in getting to know God and love God and serve God. And so when difficult times come, they turn to God, but God's like a complete stranger. And yet he alone is the one who provides the security we need in difficult times, who helps us ride out the storm. Don't make the stupid mistake of trusting in money for security. Fifth, consumerists try to buy happiness. Go back to verse 19. This wealthy farmer, you know, he's um, got this plan for stirring up all, storing up all this surplus grain because he's sure this will make his life happy. Look at the closing line of verse 19. He figures when he gets all this done, he'll be able to say to himself, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Be merry. This guy thinks he can buy happiness. Several years ago, Ford Motor ran an ad, a print ad. You probably saw it. It was for their uh, pickup truck, their Ford Ranger Super Cab. And uh, there was this uh, picture of the truck in the background, but in front of the truck there was a pile of stuff. 
I mean, everything you could imagine. There was a surfboard, there was a, there was a mountain bike, there was a, an electric guitar, an amplifier, there was fishing gear, there was scuba stuff. There, every, and in front of the pile of stuff that was in front of the truck sat a young man, and he, he was sitting cross-legged, and his arms and hands were lifted up in a posture of meditation. And, and the caption of the ad read, you can't be one with everything unless you've got one of everything. And if you've got one of everything, then you need a Ford uh, Ranger Super Cab to haul it around. Now, what an interesting mix of crass materialism and spirituality. Of all the stuff that money can buy with inner peace. In, in what ways have we assumed that money could make us happy? And Jesus called the wealthy farmer a fool for thinking he could buy happiness. You know, we're all familiar with the popular cliche, you can't buy happiness. But that doesn't stop us from trying. It doesn't stop us from trying. Whether it's a deep dish pizza or a Mediterranean cruise whether it's a registration fee for a traveling soccer team or a destination wedding in Aruba, we spend our money on things we think we anticipate will make us happy. But they rarely produce the sort of euphoria we anticipate. Yeah, there's, a, there's always a hitch somehow. It rained on that vacation or we you know we got tickets to the big game but they lost horribly or yeah, there's something there, there and even if it's perfect how long does it last so we bought that new car three years ago and for the first week or two that we drove it oh my goodness felt so good but that, that was three years ago yeah that was before the pastor dude pulled into the gym parking lot and put a scratch in the door right yes. <laughs> You know, that video game, we had to have that video game. Now we've played the video game a bazillion times. We're sick of it. The fly fishing trip to Colorado. Oh, that's a distant memory. The cute little puppy that's now chewed up all the furniture. See, but the consumerist keeps on trying to buy happiness. We should learn a lesson from King Solomon. I mentioned him earlier. He occasionally was very wise. He wrote a book, an Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes. In fact, Clayton and I just decided that we're going to do a series in fall on Ecclesiastes because our Bible-savvy reading schedule is going to take us through Ecclesiastes. Good book. And in the book, Solomon admits, he says, listen, I'm wealthy. I've been able to buy anything I want, and I've discovered it hasn't made me happy. He gives a long list of everything he's spent money on. He's got a palace. He's got a harem. He's got servants for everything under the sun. He's done all sorts of building projects and whatever with his wealth. And none of it has made him happy. He calls it repeatedly, his favorite word in Ecclesiastes is meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. He says it's a chasing after the wind. That's a good metaphor, chasing after the wind. And he concludes, if you want to be happy, you need to pursue God. In, in fact, the very ability to enjoy the stuff you have is a gift you only get from a relationship with God. He bestows this gift on people who pursue him first. So if you want the capacity to enjoy what you have, you need to still pursue God first. 
Money can't buy you happiness, but a relationship with God can. And that brings us to our sixth and final mistake that consumerists make. They treasure stuff more than God. They treasure stuff more than God. Go to the closing two verses. Verse 20, God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And then Jesus adds this concluding remark. He says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Let me me ask you a question as we draw things to a close today. When it comes to the things you spend money on, are you rich toward God? You know, if you took a look at your um, checking account ledger for this past month, if you looked at your visa bill, would you see that you're spending money on things that are making you rich toward God? You know, Jesus taught a, a really simple principle a- along these lines. In fact, it's later in the Gospel of Luke, the 12th chapter that we've been in, if your eye goes all the way down to verse 34, Jesus taught a principle that we often get wrong. In fact, we've made the principle to be the exact opposite of what Jesus taught. Okay, Jesus taught that you want to put your heart where your money is. You put your money someplace and then your heart will follow your money. This is what Jesus taught. Your heart will follow your money. So, so if, you know, if you want to care about things that are God concerns, then you put your money there. Now, we've turned the principle on its head. You know, this is what we say. We say that your, your money will follow your heart. So if you're not yet a generous person, if you're not giving to the Lord's work, what you're hoping is someday as your heart grows more and more tender toward God, as you love God more, you'll become a giver. You're a giver 101 right now. You'll be a giver 301 and 501 as your heart grows. No, Jesus says that's not the way it works. You don't wait for your heart to get to the place where it leads your spending. You put your money where it's supposed to go, and guess what happens? Your heart follows your money. And the mistake the consumerists make is they put their money in the wrong place. And guess what? The principle still follows. Your heart follows your money. So you put your money in the wrong place. And guess what? Your heart will follow your money to that location. If you put your money in stuff, that's where your heart will be. So what brings about a change, a transformation in our lives? It's not trying to change our heart first. It's changing where we put our money and our heart then follows. You get it? Good. You know, that's the simplest way you can be, begin to change this whole consumerist thing. You could break the stranglehold that consumerism has in your life. You could develop a new God-centered worldview. It's to start putting your money where you want your heart to go. And we're going to have an opportunity to do that right now. We're going to close and we're going to collect our gifts and our offerings. And we're going to sing a song that says we want more and more and more of God in our lives. Well, if we want our hearts to be more and more about God. And it starts with where we put our money. That's how we break the stranglehold of consumerism. Would you pray with me? God, as we bow before you, about to bring you these gifts, I pray, God, that you'd be breaking the stranglehold that consumerism has in our lives. There is no doubt, Lord God, that this is a chief worldview that is shaping our lives. It has squeezed us into its mold.
And it's so hard to resist. And even when we hear about the new lenses you want to give us, we're like the optometrist patient who says, no, no, I want to live with a distorted vision. Forgive us for that and free us from that, I pray. Help us to remember that Jesus, though he was rich, Scripture says, he gave up the glory of heaven and became poor for us, gave his life on the cross, took the penalty our sins deserve so that he could offer us forgiveness and new life. He was rich but became poor so that we poor in our sins and transgressions could be made rich by surrendering to him and experiencing forgiveness and new life. And that's the motivation for all this, God, to look at your son Jesus. He was not a consumerist. He was one who lived with a passion for his heavenly father. That's who we want to be. So accept our offerings. God, put our heart then where our treasure is is we're putting our treasure in the right place help our hearts to follow we pray in jesus name amen